FDF Awards. One of the most prestigious nights in the food and drink calendar is online 3rd of February. For details of this and other FDF events, including our online convention, visit our website, fdf.org.uk. FDF, passionate about food and drink. Hello and welcome to this Passionate About Food and Drink podcast from the Food and Drink Federation. My name is Tim Rycroft. I'm Chief Operating Officer at FDF. And today I'm joined, uh, always a pleasure, by both my boss and my old friend, Ian Wright. Hello, Ian. Good afternoon, Tim. So, it's the 15th of December. It's the afternoon. Uh, Are we getting an EU trade deal for Christmas? Well, since I've been predicting this on pretty much every occasion and saying that it's only just over the hill, at some point I'm bound to be right. But uh, I don't know whether we will or won't get it this week. Uh, I don't actually know for certain that we will have a deal, although it does look as though it's increasingly likely. And certainly both sides are privately talking up the prospects of some kind of resolution in the next five or six working days. So you think that it will be concluded before the nation completely disappears off on its holidays for Christmas? Well, I hope so, because if it isn't, I think there will be a number of serious logistical difficulties about how, first of all, the deal is ratified uh, or scrutinised by Parliament, and secondly, how it's implemented. And we've spoken before on this podcast about the fact that there's already a very high chance, I would have thought now pretty near certainty, that if we do have a deal, we'll be conducting trade on terms that no one can possibly know in terms of the exact detail because the actual agreement won't have been published. And do you have any sense, when you look at the three issues that we know have been the stumbling blocks, where there has been movement and by whom? I think that the fish can will be kicked down the road. I think that the... Uh, deal will centre around, or the success or failure of the negotiations will centre around the mechanism by which uh, the level playing field provisions are traded off against potential sanctions. Uh, I think there'll be some form of arbitration mechanism, but I also think that there will be some kind of agreement that if the, and as the UK uh, diverges on key regulatory issues, there will be some proportionate imposition of some sanctions, probably some kind of tariff uh, ratchet uh, over time. But I, I don't know that for sure, but it certainly is what seems to be coming out of the talks in terms of the gossip and speculation that's pretty well founded and from sources who are usually right. It's interesting. It's been clear for quite a long time now that the from the EU's point of view that they see mechanisms to ensure a level playing field as being increasingly important. It's something which they weren't able to secure in a, a meaningful way in the Canada deal that the EU did. Uh, and they were very clear in signalling that that was something they wanted to change in future trade deals. At the same time, it was equally clear from the UK's side that any kind of enduring role for the European Court of Justice in uh, adjudicating on these kind of issues and disputes was a, a red line that this government couldn't cross. Are you surprised that the role of some kind of independent arbitration hasn't reared its head earlier as a potential way to resolve this? Well, it is strange. It was Michael Howard, I think, who pointed out uh, at the weekend that 
the Canada trade deal that the Europeans have done with the, the Canada trade deal they've done with the uh, with the EU, the Northern Ireland Protocol, um, and the withdrawal agreement all had some form of independent arbitration mechanism in them. And the irony of all of this, which is not lost on some of us, is that it, the level playing field that we're walking away from and the need for a mechanism to compensate the EU uh, in that eventuality is actually a British creation. This is something that Mrs Thatcher played a massive role in creating. And here are those who profess to be her director heirs uh, doing all they can to um, both separate from it and in some ways damage it. So some sort of uh, delay to coming to a decision on fishing quotas and the timescale over which those change, some kind of agreement about an independent mechanism by which disputes about level playing field can be resolved, and you think that potentially then unlocks the deal being signed in the next few days? Yes, I do. And I think, I think both sides in some way may have found, although it's clearly a uh, a bit of an aberration, the dinner last Wednesday night, to be cathartic. I think both sides will have looked, walked away, looked at the potential for the chaos that a no deal would cause, and decided to return to the negotiating table, and not to be, partly not to be seen to be the, the party which collapsed the talks. Both sides have, have done everything they can to avoid that level of blame. But also, I think more positively, the two um, principals have seen that they would be labelled as the as the uh, as the failures in the negotiations, and I think they would have seen the level of chaos that they would have been inflicting on their own sides and decided it just isn't worth it. It's interesting, isn't it, that the uh, the language around a no deal outcome, an Australia style deal. Prime Minister has been notably very optimistic about uh, how wonderful that outcome would be. It sounds as if you're saying that your conversations with government suggest that there is a very real understanding of the challenges that uh, leaving the transition period without some kind of agreed trade deal with the EU would bring for both sides. Well, I sometimes think the Prime Minister's uh, language and boosterism is in inverse proportion to what he really believes. Um, though sometimes it's quite difficult to know what, if anything, he really believes. But uh, I think on this occasion, the idea that the UK would prosper mightily in a no-deal situation, uh, particularly in the immediate future of the no-deal, was clearly not one that was really credible. And I think, and indeed I understand, that although the Prime Minister has not been close to the preparations for no-deal until the last few days, when over the weekend he had them explained to him and he had some of the consequences of no deal and some of the delay and chaos that would be present at our ports, both in terms of uh, with the EU and with Northern Ireland, he was concerned about the damage that would do to uh, our economy and to the government at a time when he, was about, he knew he was about to have to put London into Tier 3 and potentially cancel Christmas. Now, it appears that he's managed to avoid canceling Christmas. But he is in considerable political trouble, I think, at the moment, both because of the London move and because the, and this is perhaps not his fault, but the tides uh, of the uh, COVID uh, back, uh, virus 
don't seem to be working in his favour at the moment. You can see where it's going, you can see the resolution that the vaccine will bring, but it can't be, it seems, delivered speedily enough to bring uh, some kind of easing of the national picture quickly enough for him. Um, I'm, I'm sli- I must confess to being slightly surprised by that because uh, it seems to me that, that, that it, it is simply a logistical task to get the country vaccinated. And there are only two real variables. One is how many vaccines have you got? And the other is how quickly can you get the people who need to be vaccinated in what order delivered? And I'm very surprised that more resources aren't being put into that delivery process so that hundreds of thousands and millions of people are being vaccinated every week and potentially every day. I think the Prime Minister told us at PMQs today that 130,000 have now been vaccinated, which is obviously very good news. Um, but to your point, of the 20 or so million that I think we would need to get to as we worked our way down the priority list, that, that's still quite a small proportion. So I'd like to move on. Um, since we last spoke, there has been some very welcome news of an agreement on the Joint Council that governs the Northern Ireland Protocol of an agreement for how the protocol will operate from the 1st of January onwards. Is that going to be enough to mitigate the fears that you've expressed to me and others over recent weeks about problems that may occur with trade across the Irish Sea from the 1st of January? Well, I don't think we're there yet, but we're going in the right direction. So I think we need to see the details of the so-called supermarket scheme, which is going to allow uh, those uh, running and supplying supermarkets uh, an exemption from the need for export health certificates and some of the other checks for the early part of next year. That's pretty critical to ensure smooth movement of goods across the Irish Sea and uh, uh, continued access to all the possible food that is currently available through supermarkets to Northern Ireland shoppers. Uh, We understand that those details will be announced in the next 48 hours, 72 hours. And uh, it's very important that they are because we only have eight working days until the end of the year and until the Northern Ireland Protocol comes into effect. So we do need to crack on. And another story which has really uh, grown in prominence in the last week or 10 days is that of disruption at the UK's deep sea container ports and in particular Felixstowe, which is the largest of those ports. Uh, Now, it's clear that that isn't just a Brexit-related uh, consequence and that there are other things that are driving that issue. How concerned should we be uh, at a time when all our focus really has been on the, the fresh, short shelf life food and drink that comes across the short straits crossing on roll-on, roll-off ferries and the tunnel uh, in uh, across the English Channel? How concerned should we be that at the same time that some of the longer shelf life, non-perishable ingredients that nonetheless are important for food and drink manufacturing may be being delayed and disrupted in other ports? Well, I think we should be concerned, actually. Um, I think that this is one of those extraneous factors which could be a straw which breaks the camel's back in the event of one or two other unfortunate coincidences occurring either around supplies to Northern Ireland or around the overall EU-UK trade flow. Uh, I think there is a buffer of ambient food, tinned and packaged food, that comes in through uh, containers at Felixstowe and other container ports that 
provides a bit of a kind of emergency cover to the overall food mix and would, would help us through any difficulties with short shelf life uh, uh, products. And the danger is that for some reason the Felixstowe crisis worsens and therefore that buffer doesn't exist and that, that could have quite important consequences for our food supply. Uh, hopefully as the difficulties of Felixstowe ease, uh, that won't be a factor. So we've talked a great deal about uh, the disruption which we predict will happen at the border from the 1st of January with or without a deal, although different in, in scale and, and duration. What's your best guess uh, as to how long that disruption might go on in, in either scenario? Well, the UK's um, reasonable worst case uh, planning is based on six months of disruption. Uh, and I have no reason to assume that that, that is inaccurate. Uh, I think it will take some time for traders and others, and particularly hauliers, to become used to the new arrangements and to get used to having to do the paperwork. And indeed for those actually carrying out the checks to be used to it as well. So I think a six-month period of, of fairly rocky and potentially random unpredictable events and random unpredictable delays is quite likely. Okay, so uh, I want to move on because we've got lots of things to cover today. Uh, we know that food and drink manufacturing is high on the list of sectors to be uh, you to have access to the new, not, not new technology, but the lateral flow tests, these uh, tests which are rather easier to administer and... Uh, give a quick result, um, although there is, there is some debate about their level of accuracy. Um, can you update us on the plans to pilot and then roll out lateral flow testing in food and drink manufacturing? Yes. So uh, the government and the DHSC's uh, track and trade... Department of Health and Social Care. Yes. So the Department of Health and Social Care and uh, the NHS track and trace uh, unit have been uh, tasked with prioritising food and drink manufacturing as the first of a series of uh, industries where mass testing will be, uh, first of all, as you say, piloted and then rolled out. Um, we've had a number of conversations with the unit which is running it, and we've uh, enrolled in the conversations a whole range of other trade associations representing the manufacturing sector's which are most at risk from the COVID virus, so meat, poultry, frozen food, chilled food, sandwiches, um, alongside our own mainstream membership, which includes, of course, some of those players as well. And our purpose has been to make sure that we've trialled and piloted the use of the tests in every kind of setting that seems to be first on the list of at risk uh, so that we can iron out any difficulties that may occur and then be ready early in the new year to roll the whole process out across the half a million people who work in food and drink manufacturing. We're on track for that. We've had a number of workshops which have developed the protocols under which the testing will be trialled. Uh, we have access to the tests now. Uh, and some of the pilots are underway. Indeed, there have been some pilots already that have been completed. 
But I think by the end of next week, we will probably have about a dozen. So by Christmas, we will probably have either underway or completed about a dozen factories in where in which the uh, factory sites or multiple factories on single sites where the process will have been operated for a reasonable period. And straight after Christmas, that should allow us to roll out to all of those workplaces which want to uh, receive track, uh, testing on a scaled-up basis. And just to be clear, the key benefit of that to the businesses that use it is as a, a mitigation against absenteeism. Yes, and I think there are a number of benefits. So, first of all, it should allow um, much greater control of the virus because it will allow identification of asymptomatic uh, sufferers. And that's critical to stop infection because although they may be asymptomatic, they can easily infect other people who will not be. So getting them early and allowing them to self-isolate and taking them out of the pool of potential uh, potential potential for infection of others or for infecting others is really important. That in itself will drive down absence rates. It will give us greater control of the virus. And over time, it will allow people to return to their much more normal life because they can be fairly certain that they haven't got the virus and they're not going to communicate it to others. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a win all, all the way around. Terrific. And, and I think if anybody is interested in getting involved in the pilots, you'd be happy to hear from them. Yes, I'd be very happy if they would contact me in right to fdf.org.uk as ever. Uh, my co colleague Carolyn Keohan is doing the uh, actual management of this, the project management, but we're working very closely together. And with our friends at uh, NHS Test and Trace, this particular strand of it called Test to Enable, enable people to go back to work safely. Um, and we hope to be able to record still further progress in the weeks to come. Terrific news. Okay, I'm going to move on again. Um, so many of those who listen to our podcast, and, and amazingly, that, that is quite a large number now, and thank you all uh, for listening. Uh, many of you will be avid readers of The Grocer, which is uh, the, the industry bible for the food and drink supply chain. And they will have seen the Whitehall Power List, and they will have seen at number eight, Ian Wright. Now, I know that you're genuinely very dismissive of the sort of personal, individual element of this, but it is... It must, uh, as an endorsement of the work that the Federation has done, make you very proud. Yes, indeed. I mean, I think if, if instead of saying he, it had said they, and not in a woke sense, um, and had talked about the FDF as being uh, number eight on the Whitehall influencer list, and the work that the FDF has done, I think the FDF team has done, I would feel a lot, um, a lot more willing to celebrate it. As it is, it's... Um, it's an undeserved but very welcome uh, endorsement of the work that, that you know, I've done and others have done. And it, it, what is interesting is that the list of people who uh, Adam Leyland and the grocer team see as the most influential people in UK food uh, in the governance of and management of and, um, and uh, the way in which the Whitehall machine works uh, the way that food and drink is managed, it's interesting that, that pretty much all of the top 10 are people that we work with whom we work very closely, with whom we've had a very good relationship. In fact, the only person I think I didn't know personally on the list 
very well is Ken Murphy, the new CEO of uh, Tesco. And uh, as, as you know, it turns out that he is a former colleague of mine and yours at Boots, though I don't think either of us ran across him very much. So it's traditional this time of year to do a bit of a review of the year. Um, I think if we had been doing these podcasts a year ago, we'd probably have said that the worst thing that could happen to us in 2020 was a no-deal Brexit. Little did we know uh, what we were in for, and it has been an extraordinary year. But uh, out of adversity very often comes extraordinary responses on a human and an organisational level. I just wondered if there was anything particular in 2020 that you've seen that has, for you, been quite an inspiration. Well, I certainly think that that's right. I mean, it is interesting and arguable, and we've talked about this before on this podcast, that, that, that both of us have worked in big companies for, through much of our career and been responsible for both uh, supervising and, indeed, in some cases, undertaking risk assessments. And for probably 25, 30 years, at the bottom right-hand corner of those risk matrices that we've all been reviewing probably on a monthly or quarterly basis are the words global pandemic. Um, and we've always, uh, in the way that you do those, uh, those risk assessments, you always have to ask the colleagues, uh, do you have a, a robust plan for dealing with each of these potential risks? And people have always said, yes, they do. And one wonders a little bit about whether it wouldn't be a good idea to check all the other plans now, given that we know that we didn't have a particularly robust plan for global pandemic, and the government certainly didn't. Um, uh, that said, I think, you know, I think it is arguable that we, this time last year, we probably could have, had we known a bit more and had we been a bit more uh, willing to dig, I think the signs of the global pandemic were probably reasonably evident in some places around about this point uh, 12 months ago. Uh, so we ought to be digging fairly, <laughs> we ought to be looking at what's happening in Asia to find out what might happen this year. Um, that, that aside, I do think that uh, the way in which the industry has reacted to the COVID-19 outbreak is remarkable. Um, apart from that week of the 23rd of March and a few days thereafter when there was plenty of food in the system, but it was just very difficult to get it replenished on the shelves quickly enough. But apart from that period, the way in which the industry, from the supermarkets through their staff, all the way back through manufacturers and importers and hauliers who bring the stuff across from Europe and um, farmers and growers, the whole food chain has worked brilliantly well, in my view. And not just supermarkets. I think the convenience channel has played a blinder. I think the repurposing of some of the other players has been very important. My one big concern is the is the damage, devastation, actually, which has been wrought to hospitality. I think we will rue that day. I think it's a poor choice by government. Um, I've come to the view, and I think I had it probably beginning to form... Uh, very early on, and I certainly had it um, in mind um, as early as the summer, that we had, we've got this wrong, the government's got this wrong, we should have closed universities and left uh, hospitality open. They both appear to have about the same impact on driving um, infection rates because of the mixing that takes place, and it's pretty clear that hospitality has been better at mitigating those uh, risks. 
And I think the government should have prioritised economic activity over universities, particularly when it's possible to have universities learn online. And I think we will we will rue that, as I said, rue that day, because I think it's quite likely that the hospitality industry is damaged beyond repair in many cases. And that will mean up to two million people losing their jobs in the next uh, three or four months. It will mean a real downturn in revenue to the exchequer through excise duty and other tax payments. And it will significantly destroy the, um, the life and liveliness and cultural uh, feel of our downtown metropolitan districts. And all of those are extremely concerning impacts, I think. Well, that's a very sobering thought. Uh, so it's time to wrap up. I'm going to ask you a final question. If I were to ask you personally what you wanted for Christmas this year, I suspect you would tell me that you would like Crystal Palace to be top of the Premier League. Um, But I'm going to phrase it in a slightly different way and say from a kind of FDF chief executive point of view, what would you like for Christmas this year? Well, from a personal point of view, what I'd actually like, I would like Crystal Palace to be top of the league. And I was was amused to see that uh, the Times predicts that Southampton will be top of the Premier League uh, at the end of the Christmas season. Um, so if they can do it, anyone can do it, it seems to me. Chris Palace leads, or well, perhaps not West Brom, Albion. Um, but uh, I think if I was asked personally why I'd like, is to be able to spend an extended time over Christmas with my grandchildren, which I, I would not, I don't think I'm going to get the opportunity to do. So that'll be something for the new year. And I have to say, I'm the sort of person who never in a million years thought that I, I would be um, inordinately attracted to the prospect of spending time with two, uh, with a two-year-old and a less-than-one-year-old. But uh, there you go. That's what advancing age does for you. Um, for the FDF, I just wish that we can continue to make the progress we've made uh, with our remarkable team. I hope we can continue to freshen the team uh, over the uh, over the year to come in the way that we have done over the last year. I mean, I think we face, you know, we are inevitably going to be, because we have a, an organisation which attracts young, able people in their first, second and third jobs, we recognise that those people will come to us for three or four years and then probably move on, often into our members' businesses uh, where they'll get more commercial experience. And that's a dynamic which is actually in many ways very attractive. It's certainly attractive for them and it gives us access to some really, really excellent people. And I hope we can continue to do that. And I hope we can continue to provide the leadership, the advocacy, and most importantly, the advice that we do uh, currently offer to all our members and have actually a bit through this year offered a bit more widely. I hope that continues to be really attractive both to the members and for our staff to be a great place to work and gain the experience that they seek uh, in the industry. And if we can manage to continue with that recipe for success, I think the FDF can go from strength to strength in what I hope will be a much, much more normal and ordinary year of work next year without, I hope, all of the very dramatic events that we've seen in the last 12 months. Ian, thank you very much for that. Can I wish you and your family a Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year? And to you, Tim, to your family and to everyone listening, 
Our very good wishes to everybody here at the FDF and our big, big, big thanks for all that you do for us. Uh, we couldn't make this work without such a brilliant and committed membership who support us so very well uh, through the year. So thank you very much. Merry Christmas and a very happy and successful New Year to all of you. 